when you confront death at age 22, everything changes. It got me thinking about what I wanted to do before I actually die, because life is unpredictable. Can you relate? I'm Kiki Kelly, and this is my story. My friend Amy Hallberg thought I should share some of my stories with you. She'll be joining me here. Some are hard, some are funny, and some are just unbelievable. But they're all true. So here we are. Season 1, Episode 6. Tales from an Inadvertent Bucket List Champ. So, second year of Teach for America, and you come back. You have made it. You have survived. I made it. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> and so you came back. There was something that happened at the end of the first year that lets you know you had your students' attention more than you thought. Oh, for sure. So the first semester was basically just literally surviving and not running off into the teacher's restroom and crying. Um, the second semester... And to be really clear, you did that a couple times, didn't you? Of course I did. I mean, th- that hurt. I mean, they could be really mean. Anyway... <laughs> So the second semester, I had instituted just as a way to calm my own weary self. Like, I was just like, you know what? We're turning off the lights. The last 10 minutes of the class, if you've done your work, just lay down your head. You can sleep. I'm just going to read aloud from House on Mango Street by Sanders Cisneros. Because it's my favorite book. And um, it's sweet. And it's, it's, it's bittersweet. And it's searching for a home, not only a physical home, but a home within yourself. And um, one day I was like, you know, what the hell am I doing? There, no one's listening anyway. We may, I may as well just put my head down and sleep. At least we'll have some, you know, peace. And, and so I kind of put the book down and I just put my head down and the kids were like, what are you doing? Why, why aren't you reading? And, and I was like, <laughs> you don't even know where we are, what's going on. And, and the one kid who uh-huh. had challenged me so much the first semester, was like, no, you were just reading about the four trees. You know, keep going, Miss Kelly. We really like hearing you. We really, this is really relaxing and like being read to. And I was like, really? And my heart, you know, went up into the proper place and, and I spirit lifted me and I continued reading the book. But um, that was huge. It was huge. And so that summer, you actually had a project for yourself based on that. Yeah, so I realized that a lot of my students had never been read to as children. And then I found out beyond that, many of them did not own any books in their home. So, um, Because was, you always had books in your home, right? Yeah, we had like... The, we always had books. You read books. That's what you do. Not only did we have sometimes a better library than the actual library, and I knew how to use the library and we went to the library regularly. So, And librarians have always been very, very dear to me. And the one at the high school I was teaching at was no different. She she was there with me. That summer I told her, you know, some of my secret plans. Like, I really, really wanted to teach Ellie Wiesel's night, but could she get enough copies? And she was going to work on it. And she's the one that suggested I go to B. Dalton, the old bookstore that used to exist. You remember, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just, I went and asked them what they do with the books that aren't sold. And they said that they cut the covers off and then they destroy them. I said, well, ha- have you ever considered just donating the books with the covers off to a high school classroom? 
And they said, well, I don't see why not. And shortly before the school year, no, I was like, I think it was into the first week of school. I entered my classroom one day and there was a mountain of books in the middle of the floor. Wow. <laughs> and, and I'm like, oh my gosh. So then the, the kids started coming in for class and it was just better than Christmas. It was like, they, they were just like, what is this? And I'm like, have at it. Take as many as you want. They're yours. They're free. Free books. Free books. And, <laughs> and instead of free bird. And free bird. I, the kids were, it was like Christmas. Yeah. And they, they, you know, they were loaded down with books that they were taking home to own. Wow. Yeah. So it's nice that the kids felt good about that. But there was something bigger at stake too, right? I mean, you have to teach these kids. Oh, my God. Yes. Okay. Because... <laughs> so, so my second year, I mean, first, uh, first year I was mainly teaching English and world literature, right? Mm -hmm. Second year, they decided to give me composition. So the state writing exam is halfway through the semester because it takes so long to hand grade them. There's no, there's no machine grading. So I'm, I'm giving these students who are supposedly zero to 21st percentile, right? None of our, none of them have previously passed, to my knowledge, the state writing exam. Wow. <laughs> um, and I'm going to do it in half the time. So I'm like, oh my God, please work with me here. So thankfully the librarian somehow located enough copies of Ellie Wiesel's Night because my population was part Native American, part African American, part white, and then random me, right? Yeah. And, and I'm like, gosh, you know, really the only neutral environment we have is the Jewish diaspora in that particular area of the country at that particular time. Because you don't want to be teaching about a group that is represented in your class. You actually want to teach them from an outside right, culture. Right, right. And and because, I mean, I at various points I had selected Native American literature or African American literature, but, but this was for the state writing exam. Okay. So I wanted a level playing field. right. And I also knew by this time that the traditional teaching methods did not work. If you just sat and talked at them and told them what they should know, symbol, you know, symbolism and what are the major themes and let's sit here and read out loud, it just, it just wouldn't work. So I would assign a page to each student in my three classes. There were black hours, which means 90 minutes. So um, there was enough time for us to actually physically do art and all they had was one page. They just had to read that one page. And on their eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, there had to be some kind of imagery from that page. It could be a symbol. It could be a character. It could be whatever, the location. They had to have a relevant quote, the page number. And then we put the quote unquote book up on the wall in order so that you could walk around the classroom and read the book. Wow. And, uh, you know, of course, I had no idea how that was going to turn out, but uh, it was pretty, you know, desperate circumstances. So when the test results came back... Wait a minute, back up. Yeah. How did the kids respond to this? I, I mean, think they, they thought I was they... a little like Willy Wonka. They they were wary of me, you know, like I I could be singing Waltzing Matilda one second or like speaking in a foreign language or I had unorthodox disciplinary methods, like there always needed to be cleaning. So it'd be like... Oh, hey, I see that you can't study right now. Why don't you clean the blackboards? <laughs> so, so it really, you know, no one really knew what to do with me, and I didn't really know how it was going to go. All I knew was the kid, the one who had challenged me the first semester, who apparently was listening the second semester, and now 
it's time to take the state writing exam. And um, I know he had never shown up for one before. He had never tried. He'd never even shown up. That's why he was in the zero to 21st percentile. It's not because he couldn't do it. It was because he'd never tried. So there he was. And we're all in the library. It's being proctored by the librarian. It's in a safe space. And um, this kid is clearly nervous, and he leads the entire group. He circles everyone up and holds hands and leads a prayer, and uh, which was incredible to me. And then they sit down and take the test. This and is a kid who formerly was like, yeah, I don't care. He said, I'm not even going to live until 22. Why should I pay any attention to you? And now he's leading everybody in a now prayer because he cares. He's leading the prayer. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. That alone was was enough. There really were no expectations for any of them to, to really pass it. So I was really surprised when I got the results back. All had passed but two, and those two had come to me illiterate and had, had done fairly well for them. And the kid did very well indeed. And, and um, he was running through the school, and this is set up like a kind of a community college where there's an English building, there's a sidewalk, because it's North Carolina and the weather's beautiful. So he's running around the school yelling that he passed the state writing exam, and no one stops him <laughs> because, <laughs> because it's kind of amazing to see, right? Right. And then I hear from the superintendent's office that there's accusations of us cheating. Ugh. And honestly, I you know, students got wind of it and, and were just very angry and said that they would take that test anytime, any place. How dare anyone accuse us of cheating? And the librarian and vouched cheating for us. because they, they had, had done, done well. so poorly in the past? Or Yeah, I guess because the, the, the expectations were dashed. I mean, they were boxed into the 0 to 21st percentile, and suddenly these kids were citing page numbers, using talking about symbolism, quoting... Because they had walked around the classroom and seen all the other yeah, signs, and, and, and they, then they absorbed it. And the kids are not dumb. <laughs> they, right. They're just, they had to learn a different way, and, and some of them had never really been given the scaffolding to... How to break those things down. Right, and you can teach the five-paragraph essay pretty easily, but, but to actually have them understand the concept of the book. There was one particular lesson that stands out that was the most important thing that made it hit home. It wasn't just a book on a wall. Yeah. The principal by then had, this was before I got the results back, but he took a chance on me. Um, he, he was like, okay, I know this is unorthodox, but I'll let you do this weird lesson outside with two metal garbage cans that can be used to burn things in. Okay. And I, I had to tell him in advance what the plan was. The plan was to have my students right away at the very beginning of the semester create, you know, paper dolls that represented them. And on the back of it, they would put their age. So either they were 15 or 16 at that time, where they lived. And prior to that, I had already decided all the 15-year-olds. I mean, in Ellie Wiesel's night, Dr. Mengele is the angel of death who sends people off to either the crematorium or to the work camp. There's a line and he doesn't say anything in the book. And so I'm Dr. Mengele which is horrible, but I also want to hit home. I want these kids to feel a little bit, just a tiny little bit of what what this book is about. So I take the kid, you know, my, my smart ass, and another, like a class clown that I knew was going to be disruptive, and they're my henchmen, which is exactly what happened in the book. You, right. Right. So You take the, the worst, most sassy people and put them in charge of other people. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So if, if people weren't following directions, so the henchmen were told that the class was to line up in a straight line and I was, they would meet up with me, present their paper dolls, and I would point right or left. And if anyone was out of line, that they could either take a scissors and cut the paper doll and then another one had a shovel or and they could like just put them in a trench. 
which is, you know, pretty awful and horrifying, but it need, I think it just, it, it had to be visceral. And so principal agreed to it. The kid was the one who was in charge of actually, he was actually at the crematorium. The one that we knew beforehand was the crematorium and he actually burned some of the paper dolls. So it was pretty hideous because I, I knew in advance that a lot of kids would just cut out pictures from magazines. And of course, then arms and legs would be missing. So if you had any physical challenges, if you were 15 years old instead of 16, if you were from closer to Roanoke Rapids than to Littleton, you would be automatically disqualified. And so I knew what the criteria was. They didn't. They would step up to me and I would point to the right or to the left based on those criteria. And then at the, go ahead. <laughs> well, no, I'm just wondering, like for people listening, why did you choose to do this? What was the point of this lesson? Because this is a pretty harsh lesson. I had heard on NPR that there were people who didn't believe in the Holocaust and that there were some teens who were in a screening of Schindler's List who had laughed. They didn't think it was real. And I, I had it in my head that no kid was going to laugh. They weren't going to laugh at this. And... At the end of the lesson, we took the paper dolls that survived and we put them on the board. And then we sat down and I just said, go ahead and tell me, you know, what you're thinking. And <laughs> they were so upset. They, there were tears. So, you know, how could you do this to us? This was horrible. And, and I was like, well, you know, it, it actually happened. And, you know, I didn't relish the role of Dr. Mengele either, but I wanted you to see. And the, the weird thing was the statistics of who had survived and who didn't were pretty close to real. Wow. Yeah. There is the danger of the further out we get that this becomes a faint memory. And then we point to Germans and go, oh, look, Germany. And so. Oh, yeah, it could never happen anywhere else. Right, it's just Germans. Yeah, I used to show the kids in my classes, I used to show them Triumph of the Will, which is the Nazi propaganda film from the Nuremberg rallies so that the kids could see that. And that was pretty shocking. But I imagine this must have changed some of those kids, the experience. There was a different tenor to our class after that, and they did go into the test with a gravitas that I didn't expect to see from 15 and 16-year-olds. And so when they did all pass the test except for two and very narrowly. I guess I wasn't that surprised and I don't think they really were that surprised either. It was just it was it was hurtful that we had been accused of cheating, although it didn't last long because the librarian was very upset on our behalf and the kids, you know, were calling and saying they would take the test anytime anywhere. And there's an there's an echo there. I mean, so you're teaching these children what it is to be wrongfully dismissed in a really grave way. And then they go through this testing experience and they aren't taken seriously and they are dismissed. It's almost like there's an echo between those two experiences of you can't just write people off based on characteristics that are Arbitrary. arbitrary. And I was so proud of them for fighting for themselves. And in fighting for themselves, also fighting for the contents, the very important contents of this book and for this historical period that had relevance to these kids in modern life, in that history, in that era, what had happened in that county, in that state, in this country. There were echoes everywhere. So you actually going around town were seeing echoes of that. Yeah. So um, in the midst of the breakthroughs and the experience of some success... In my second year of Teach for America, I also started noticing because I wasn't so involved with like, oh my God, what am I going to do for my, my, my lesson plans? And you know, how am I going to keep these, this class in order? Now it was looking around the area and seeing these white placards that were plantation owner placards for the plantations, for the tobacco plantations, and realizing that a lot of my roster had the same names as these 
placards. Which means? Which means that a lot of these kids were descended from plantations in which they took the slave name. Huh. And it was just, uh, you know... It, <laughs> so they are direct descendants of... Slaves. Yeah. And, and and to realize what kind of PTSD and... I mean, Generational. I, yeah, absolute generational. And that there were some, some of these kids who had never even been out of the county. So that got me dreaming about what, 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 what I could do, what more I could do. You know, I had a dream to take as many students as I could to Washington, D.C., and that I'll talk about that later. But, you know, I started thinking about these, these kids just getting out of there. You know, if they decided to go back, that's fine. But, but just to see what else is out there. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's hard to see what else is out there. When my mom remarried and we left the housing project and we moved across town and I started going to school with the kids from Pill Hill, which is where the doctor's kids lived. And, you know, ironically, years later, I'd become a doctor's kid myself much later. Right. But um, that was when I realized I had been so poor. That's when the, sh- the real shame started. And when I started to look at TV shows in a different way, like, oh, those are TV families and my family was abnormal and I don't see my family on these shows. And then I assumed that any family that wasn't like my family was a TV family and everything was perfect. Right. So your kids are passing the test, but beyond that, you are also helping them to see themselves more fully at another different level. I yeah, mean, that may not have been the intention that like the, you may not have said that, yeah. you know, I am going to, <laughs> but, but somewhere in you, you must have understood that that was a thing that needed to happen. Yeah. Out of that experience came other lessons, one in which my parents were visiting and my mother as a medical student resident at the time was, I can't remember if she was in medical school or resident, probably resident. You know, I left the room so I could actually say that my because we didn't have quote unquote permission for my mother to talk about birth control, but she had been a uh, she had been pregnant at sixteen, and it changed her her life forever. I was the the product of that. Of so that pregnancy. you just sort of stepped out of the room, and she may happen to have talked about birth control, so Correct. that they could not repeat that legacy. Correct. Well, and and just you know how how an unwanted pregnancy or how an unplanned for a pregnancy would could change these young kids' lives and how what would seem pretty glamorous to have this, you know, doll baby that loved you for only you and everything was going to be great actually worked out in real economic terms. Wow. So none of my girls got pregnant. Wow. Which is, which is not I, Right. Oh, thing. I was told early on none of my kids would pass. They were all 0 to 21st percentile. A lot of them would end up in prison or on drugs. Most of them, you know, many of them would get pregnant. That did not happen with my students. Yeah, so that alone was just like... Which matters. I mean, yes, the writing test matters. It matters hugely. And those other things matter. I just wanted that one kid to, to think that he was going to live beyond 22. <laughs> you know... <laughs> And in that small little intention, other big things started happening. I mean, like, so once they got over the whole, the kids must have cheated thing, and the librarian vouched for you and the kids got mad and, and what they, they looked it over and realized, oh my gosh, these kids did pass. Yeah, then suddenly I had uh, some credibility as a teacher. So while the, the victories that I considered 
victories were more along the lines of, you know, hey, my students were coming to class and um, asking me to teach them how to drive. And, um, you know, I was getting invited to local powwows or to church or Sunday dinner or whatever. What really mattered to, you know, the powers that be was were the test scores. And so the test scores all of a sudden earned me entree into like being a respectable teacher who was invited to represent the teachers union and to present a class on teaching the teachers about, you know, how to teach writing, which is pretty crazy considering it's my second year of teaching, but it happened. And so and the, you're writing articles for Teach for America? Yeah. For their newsletter? Yep. And I was writing poetry and things were were going really well. And um, I asked, you know, one of the teachers to take me to the little country store down the road. And I had wondered privately, you know, teenagers eat all the time. And why weren't they down at this country store getting things to eat? And when I went there, I realized why. So in the midst of all this kind of success and accolades and, you know, overall things happening that were like, wow, this is great. Underneath that all, there's the signs of the plantations, and there's this country store where I went to get an RC cola and a moon pie because that's I was like on my bucket list, you know. I just thought I'm <laughs> in North Carolina and I'm gonna have an RC cola and a button. And there was this heaviness and this kind of distrust and suspicion. And you know, here are two teachers from the school, two white teachers from the school. Um, just buying an RC cola and a moon pie. And it was like we walked into, you know, no trespassing someone's private property. And I got the feeling why kids would not feel comfortable going there to buy food to eat. Right. That's all I'm going to say about that. It just, I got this heavy, heavy feeling. There were still a lot of things going on in that county and in that state and in this country that had always been going on. And that just weren't talked about. And that you wouldn't have seen, maybe, had you not gone to buy... Correct. ...the RC Cola and the Moon Pie. Yeah, if I were in my own little bubble and, oh, yeah, such a great teacher, whatever. No, I started opening my eyes and looking into what what were the structural causes for the poverty and for the chaos of that school. So as much as you can do everything you want to as an outsider to change the circumstances of these students' lives. There are some realities that you cannot contend with. Yeah, I mean, there's the glass ceiling, right? Well, there's, there's, a, there's this wall, and I'm going to beat my head up against it. I realize there are only so many things I can do um, as a single teacher from the outside to change something that was so structurally inherently geared against my students' success. Mm. So I think, um, yeah, with all that success, you know, there's this underbelly, and um, we can talk more about it in the next episode, maybe. Yeah, and that's the final one for the season, so... Ooh, stay tuned! How does it end? have to tune in! <laughs> this is Amy Hallberg, in partnership with Kiki Kelly, Thank you for listening to this episode of Tales from a Bucket List Champ. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast and please share it with friends. We'll be back next time with episode number seven, Teach for America Nearly Killed Me. We hope you'll join us. Until then, what's one item on your bucket list?